Hi, my name is Anna Shaflarsky, and this is Letters to the Editors. For this episode, I've invited Nathan Beyonce Ma, a Berlin-based writer and editor from Seattle. As a journalist, his work has been featured in a constellation of global publications, from Vice to Crack Magazine and Teen Vogue. Trained as a journalist and animal behavior scientist, Nathan writes fiction through a creation of virtual personas in his prose on his blog, his Facebook feeds, and Twitter. He uses each of those platforms to experiment with his public persona in a different way. Like the Gwyneth Project, where Nathan became the Gwyneth Paltrow of Facebook and was ousted by Chris Krauss. Or how he'd like to be famous, and that one of the things sabotaging him from it is his own humanity. This is Nathan Beyonce Ma reading We Need to Talk About Nathan a speculative editorial interview with himself set in an undetermined future. We need to talk about Nathan. In the post-Kardashian era, fame for fame's sake is said to be a concept long gone. Berlin's Nathan Beyoncé Ma disagrees. It's hard to relax around Nathan Beyoncé Ma. The proudly B-list socialite has a quick finger on the trigger and an uncanny taste for apprehension. Though we met on a high-rise rooftop in Berlin city center with the sun streaming through the windows and a breezy marimba backbeat soundtracking the poolside sunbathing session that was underway as we immediately started on a round of cocktails, he seemed to rest, relax, and especially recharge simply on my clear discomfort. What do you find fun? I asked him in hopes of breaking the ice. Without missing a beat, he responds, talk about myself mainly. Do you always treat your subjects like Tinder dates? His straight-shot approach to social interactions is both incredibly alluring and incredibly unnerving, but you would be hard-pressed to find someone who doesn't take the bait. Artnet called him charming. Noisy went for infectious. And Berlin's build offered a surprisingly reticent appraisal. Er stork wird I like attention, he continues. The way I see it, interviews are a three-for-one deal. I get to grab drinks with someone who can hold a conversation. I get to talk about myself. And I get to hear how much people loved hearing about me again once the stories hit the newsstands. In the pre-Peter Thiel post-peak of Gawker, writer Andy Cush declared a moratorium on the influencer and the related economy in which social capital was a verified commodity traded openly between the haves and the have-nots, namely the New Age cool kids and the corporations. He points to an interview with an unnamed social media executive that was first published on Digiday's website. It reads, I remember I once did a speaking thing to a school of young social media people, and they asked, how do I become an influencer? So I asked them what they were good at, and they said nothing. We've gotten to the point that if we have a meeting with them and we ask what they do and they say influencer, we don't hire them. If they say photographer, we do. In the post-Kardashian era, it would seem that fame for fame's sake is a concept long gone. Nathan disagrees. In fact, there's a calm but not naive comfort in how he holds himself when probed about what exactly the role of a socialite is in the late teens of this millennium. I'm controversial, he laughs. I mean, why are you here? You might not know how I pay my rent, but you know my name. You know what I did last summer. 
Or was the question veering towards my economic dealings? He leans deeper into the bar, and the plunging neckline of his billowing t-shirt drops to reveal a patch of chest hair that belie his youthful face as he laughs when I say yes. The lady hates to disappoint, but that's between me and my accountant. It was the summer of 2013 when Nathan packed up the life he had grown to know in Seattle and set out for more German pastures in Berlin. Probably could have planned that one a little better, he surmises as he swirls the ice around his now empty glass. But I'd already told everyone I'd ever met that I was moving to a country I'd never stepped foot in, so I had to, you know? I was just waiting for the invitation. His invitation, it turns out, came in the form of a breakup. In the immediate aftermath of a long-term relationship coming to a sudden end, Nathan bought his one-way ticket to the German capital. I quit my job, I moved out of my apartment, and by the time I walked out of Tegel, it was just maybe two weeks after I'd been dumped. It comes as no surprise that one of the first interviews with Nathan describes him in 2010 as tallish, lean, and matter-of-fact. His timbre floats between bored and absurdly peppy, but he constantly affirms his position directly and succinctly. I reached out to the article's author, Mary Grady, and she emailed her only comment to me. He seemed bright and promising, but guarded. When I asked him about the article, Nathan thanked me for the compliment, then assured me that the journalistic integrity of the meeting was rendered irrelevant as soon as the editor asked which of his brothers was his parents' favorite. I was raised as an introvert until I realized how wrong so many people are, but how much airtime their useless opinions are afforded, he says as we order another drink. Soon thereafter, I started testing the waters, being bolder, or braver, or even just more crass, and I realized quickly that every time I hurt myself, I was down for five minutes and then I bounced back. He manages not to break eye contact while continuing. It's that, really. The idea that if I want to do what I want, I accept that it will snub some people out. But realistically, I feel much more at home extending a due apology than I do trying to avoid an upset. I realize that the idea of offering a helping hand is cute and for many people effective, Nathan says as we walk to the poolside with a fresh round of greyhounds, but I'm not good at building things, building people up. I'm chaotic neutral at best. I'm fiery and I bite back, so I'm often described as unfiltered, but that's simply wrong, he says wistfully with little remorse, and it becomes clear why Nathan's outbursts have been both received with adoration and torn to bits by critics clapping back. He mentions a particularly snarled conversation during which he grappled the mic off a media darling while traipsing down the red carpet. People are still coming for me about that, he says. But if you hand the microphone to a white supremacist, you best believe their career will be the B-roll when I'm finished with them. Indeed, regret seems to exist outside of Nathan's vocabulary, and yet there's a method to his madness and his outbursts or at least a general direction. I'd probably phrase it as I know exactly what I'm saying, and I know exactly how inadvisable it is. He tilts his head. We wake up each day knowing, on some level, that it could be our last. Once I learn that everything we might possibly do between our birth and our death is a gamble that will likely hurt, it all made a little bit more sense. When someone goes out for a run, they know their lungs will burn and their calves will tense, yet the pain of each part is somehow justified by strengthening the whole. I have a similar approach to my life, he continues. 
Someone is going to hate every last breath I take, so why don't I breathe somewhere that matters? If being criticized is a built-in fixture in my life, which it very much is, I should at least be allowed to control what I'm criticized for. I think it's also why people have a fascination with my personal financing. I'm duly unprofessional in that I've been doing my own press training. I think it's also why people have a fascination with my personal financing. I'm duly unprofessional in that I've been my own press training. I don't have a manager or an agent or a prescribed sense of loyalty in the same way that my peers do, and I should be, by all accounts, strictly unprofitable. But I do meet, and it works. Indeed, the market Nathan has cornered is based on his kamikaze comedy that seems socially irresponsible in every way. What he doesn't let on is the calculated candor that is the perfect bait-and-switch for honesty, transparency, and maybe even empathy. His opinions are heard loud and clear. On reading fiction, I don't care. On white people, has-beens. And on bar tabs, I love them. They're so middle-class. What's murkier is nearly everything else. Nathan has managed to remain remarkably tight-lipped on his vulnerabilities, his love life, even his age and a number of other disclosures that humanize someone. Yet he still sells a story that we're willing to buy. He's still in our papers. He's still on our screens. It's perhaps for this reason that it's hard to relax around Nathan. The satisfaction he openly finds in the discomfort of others isn't straight sociopathy. It's a knowing pleasure that the strict filter that guides every moment of his life is working. The style guide of Nathan Beyoncé Ma meets its mark when we're lured into the game he plays because it's a game in which our participation is his trophy. As we catch a cab to his choice dinner joint, a Lebanese restaurant that he describes as the perfect site for a second date, Nathan gets distracted while dropping the change from his wallet as he gives directions to our driver, and his energy sharply shifts from aggressively taunting to what I could only describe as approximating sincerity. I know it's basic, but it's all therapeutic, really. Nathan says as we turn a corner. He shifts suddenly again, now as if musing at a cocktail party. It's not hard to bring a plant back from the precipice of death. I've sanded a wooden pallet that I drunkenly carried a mile down the road and up my staircase and created a corner in my bedroom with three house ferns, a monstera, and a pothos that I've been growing for the past few years. His phone goes off, and as he types out a text, he shifts once more. They don't mind that a chestnut tree blocks out all the direct light from entering my window. They do, however, remind me that there exists life offline and out of sight. He breaks off into a sneezing fit and reaches for a tissue. It's fine. I'm allergic to dust and glass and pollen and happiness, probably. Are you happy? I ask him. No, he mutters dryly. Then, I'm Nathan fucking Beyonce. Is the interviewer interviewing Nathan today or Nathan, famous Nathan from the future? When I was writing this piece, I, I was positioned as Nathan in a few years. I hope to be able to make the New Yorkers talk of the town. I would love to be that famous, that important. When I was writing this piece, it came from a place of kind of turmoil, especially within my professional life a career that I'd been working on, or rather a job, a project I'd been working on, very suddenly ended. So it was kind of for the first time in, you know, 
a year and a half, two years, I had to reevaluate, okay, right, what am I doing professionally? What do I value in a career? And what am I trying to look for in the future? And I realized, realistically speaking, what I what I will aim for is I love fame. I love attention. I was trying to figure out, okay, right, if I were to become this figure, this prominent figure, for what would I be famous? And I really couldn't, I couldn't answer that question. So then I started evaluating, you know, what do people like in me? What do they respect in me? This interview was teasing out those qualities that I think could take me far. My, you know, kamikaze sense of comedy, my crassness, my lack of any clear, distinct, actual skills, but also very, very distinct skill set at the same time. Who did you imagine interviewing you? You must have had someone in mind, right? That you wanted to follow you around town and go out to dinner with you. I actually, this is going to sound so bizarre, but I was actually interviewing myself as if I was interviewing myself in five years. But it got a little tricky. It got really tricky with like the actual like voices. How do I distinguish Nathan answering this and Nathan asking this? So I ended up doing the interview and making myself when I was asking the questions, basically getting into the space of Nathan, but hungover. So it was actually hungover Nathan interviewing famous Nathan. My background, I do a lot of uh, features for art, uh, for art, culture, music, and architecture. So coming at it from like that style of writing and also that approach of writing as if I would have approached any other interview. Nathan makes Nathan uncomfortable. There's like this kind of um, integrated criticism yeah. of yourself in the text. Oh, entirely, yeah. I know that I've made <laughs> people I've interviewed before pretty uncomfortable. <laughs> I try to be nice. I am very nice. I'm very friendly, very affable. There are certain things when you're interviewing someone and you just want a good quote. For example, trail off sentences and just stare at people for an entire minute until they start talking again. It's absolutely great for interviews. Socially, maybe not so much. Nathan as the interviewer, Nathan as the profile subject, uh, kind of tapped into that energy, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With time, how will it be read? Will it be read that you're that you believe in all that or that you're you're kind of laughing at it? I guess, right. In 50 years, if someone was to re- revisit this, I can see that people would probably take it at face value, like take it as, you know, um, kind of an artifact of the social media icon, social media celebrity, the like influencer moment, uh, the Kardashian moment. Where you're ruthless, you have no regrets. Exactly. You like to make people uncomfortable. Exactly. Like they would, re- they would read that as face value. I think so, yeah, because I think it is a very complicated relationship. Like one of the things I've been thinking about this week really, really often was because I, I do work in like marketing and social media and I, I have... A lot of, I mean, let's be real, I've got a lot of jealousy for social media personalities. I don't have that strong of a following. I'm not that famous. I'm not even verified on Twitter, which I think is fucking rude. But, so within that, I... I, I don't even know what that means to be verified on Twitter. Oh, you get this cool little, like, blue tick next to your name, and it's, like, verified real person. Oh, really? Yeah. And it happens when you have a certain amount of followers, or... Like, a certain amount of influence, if you're, like, okay. known for, like, I don't know, if you pissed someone off on live TV or, like, wrote a viral article. 
they vet people out for uh, verification. For example, you know, I think Ken Bowen, that guy who stood up in like the red sweater in like, one of the pres- presidential debates and became a huge meme, if he made a Twitter account, he'd be verified in a day. It's not, I mean, let's be real, it doesn't really matter. Anyway, one of the things I think about so often is like this people who are famous just for like having Twitter accounts, the people who are like, are um, this Twitter influencers essentially. Like a lot of them do have professional lives that are relevant in terms of their writing careers that people follow or their actors or uh, stand-up comics or chefs on YouTube. But some of them, there are still people who are famous just for being funny on Twitter. And I think within that, I was looking at that last week and kind of just came to this point of clarity where, are you familiar with Katie Weaver? Absolutely phenomenal writer, but I realized that she has this very distinct style of writing that she's had for like, I don't know, the past decade. And it essentially created an entire niche of Twitter, of social media personalities. Twitter, okay, let me put it like this. Twitter is a competition and the person who wins is the person who gets closest to Katie Weaver's writing style. Okay. You said that you're you're jealous of... I'm very jealous of them. But then I was also like, right, like, this is... When you have this strict formula, when you reduce it down to, like, oh, no, like, here's the A, B, C, plug them into, like, the equation and output a good tweet that will be retweeted 600 times, then it became a lot less fun, a lot, a lot less enigmatic. Mm-hmm. The idea of, like... Like, where do I stand on, is the influencer economy dying? Are influencers a thing? Will How will influencers be remembered? And how will this piece be looked at if people are looking at it in 50 years? Yeah, to be honest, I don't know. I think I am laughing alongside with it, but then also buying into the fantasy, buying into this idea. Oh. Uh, what about, talk about your blog. You started that not so long ago. Yeah. What was the impulse and what are you writing about? The impulse with my blog was essentially that there's a lot of, because uh, I, still, I still do work as a freelance journalist in addition to my day job doing marketing and social media consulting. And the impulse to start that, the, the tiny letter to start the blog was essentially just being like, right, there's so many stories that I want to pitch and tell me stories and essays and ideas that I want to be out there and that I'm willing to commit to be out there. But I want them on my own terms and I want them in my own words and I don't necessarily... The editorial process I do feel like is an adulteration of like my ideas and my words and that like, right, in the editor's eyes, you know, there has to be why now? Like the question of why now? Why is this relevant? Is this relevant? To be honest, like a lot of the things that I publish and a lot of the ideas I have for the the blog, there is no why now. There is no like, why is this important? I just wanted to write them. I read somewhere that you come from journalism. Yeah. Background. I mean, to be honest, I started as a journalist because in university, all of my friends were journalism students. And the... um, So I'd be hanging out in the newsroom with them after school. And... Eventually, the editor-in-chief, after a few weeks, came up to me and said, Nathan, if you don't work at the newspaper, you can't hang out in the newsroom. And I said, fuck yourself. I'll work at the newspaper then. <laughs> so I got a job at the school newspaper, basically, as a, I don't know, petty revenge plot. Um, I'd studied animal behavior and photography, neither of which are particularly employable fields. Just so burnt out, I didn't want anything to do with either of them. So I was just like, okay, right, what can I do? What 
have I enjoyed doing? Why don't I just go into writing? Uh, so I moved to Berlin and started writing mostly arts journalism. And in the years since, it's kind of branched out to do some fashion criticism, you know, entertainment criticism, news coverage, music, interviews, features, profiles, bits and bobs of advertorial copy, whatever people tell me, I'll write it. Like this, it wasn't a lie. I did essentially get broken up within 2013 and just say, fuck it, I'm done, and move to Berlin two, three weeks later. I could have planned that one better. What did it do to your writing? I think, to be honest, for the first few months, it really it really impacted my writing and also my speech because I wasn't hanging out with that many native speakers. Uh, for the first three months, I essentially just hung out with uh, a bunch of Croatian expats. I just hung out with them, and I realized after about three months of that that not only was my spoken English deteriorating, but so was my written English. Got to the point where, like, if I got drunk, I would get drunk with a Croatian accent. Did you feel confident in your position or your perspective immediately? Like, there was no... You didn't skip a beat, or did you feel like, oh... Can I speak so confidently from my point of view in a place that I don't know so well? I'm speaking also from my own personal... Uh, yeah. took me, like, years. No, it took me a solid year, at, at the very least, to do that. And even now, I'm still finding that voice. And also finding the authority, finding the comfort in being like, no, no, here's my opinion, it's fucking right. I think that there's also a lot of writing out there and social media that also encourages that kind of approach. People don't have to be so afraid to comment... Yeah, I mean, entirely. It's something that I've actually, like, learned a lot about from existing kind of, like, those unmoderated public spaces online. Groups, like, in Berlin, like, uh, Free Your Stuff Berlin, I think are really, really interesting access points because you watch the discussions that happen around things like gender, about street harassment, about race, about sexuality, about partying, about noise complaints, about should Americans learn German... Uh, you watch these discussions happen in these public forums. At a certain point, you know, these people engaging, <laughs> who are saying, like, some pretty fucked up thing about women, pretty fucked up things about, like, immigrants and refugees and people of color and trans people or whatever, they're posting them in these public spaces on an account that is marked by their name and marked by their employer and marked by their alma mater, etc., 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 I realized, like, okay, if they have the confidence to do that, like, why shouldn't I have the confidence to be like, no, this is fucked up, and this is what I believe, and this is what I think, and now I'm not going to get into this fight, or, yes, this is a hill I'm going to die on very publicly. Do you participate in those kinds of conversations that you see on online public forums? I never really enter the fray. I did that when I was younger, but then got tired. Uh, I basically usually just screenshot them and then tweet about it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that it, in the end that it has some sort of productive value or long-lasting value? The discussions or... Yeah, that they're the discussions themselves and also that they're, that they're visible. Like, I think right. that I see a lot of them. There's like a sort of a ringside kind of... Um, I mean, one, I probably learn a lot from things that I didn't have to take any slack for. Yeah. Right? Which no, is no, like no, a guilty no. pleasure. And second of all, there's sort of a kind of an ambulance chasing kind of drive to see like the next person get slaughtered. Oh, entirely. Yeah. Like I love a good internet train. <laughs> I think 
There exists this pretty interesting and relevant artifacts of the zeitgeist. Like, you can really tell how society, how people as a whole, um, relate to certain, like, topics and conversations based on how these conversations are being, you know, deleted, censored, created, cut off. It's, like, what was most interesting about, like, scrolling through Facebook's, uh, leaked content guidelines about someone basically uh, published a lot of the Facebook guidelines for the people who go through reported posts and either say yes or no or yes or no, ban this person, block this person, delete this post or this is fine. And especially with something like Facebook, this large company, this uh, tech organization, then implementing kind of a style guide for this is what a hate crime is and this what is what isn't a hate crime. I find it really interesting as a way to like, as a cipher upon which like we project uh, and also understand what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. You know, public train wrecks are also really indicative of the type of spaces that these are. For example, with Free Your Stuff Berlin, uh, one of the few things that the admins have like uh, stepped in to say, like, right, this is a group for giving shit away. Um, do not, you know, message people and ask them out on dates. This is really fucking weird. And I think train wrecks like that, like the fact that that had to be said, are also very interesting in terms of how they reflect the spaces in which they're allowed to, like, take place. This reflection of the people who've created this space, you can also understand kind of, like, uh, a barometer reading of the community offline as well as online. Thinking about how people respond to things online, to Twitter, how much does that influence the way you write? Well, like every platform, like my blog, Tiny Letter, my Facebook, my Instagram, my Twitter, I have a very different relationship to my audience with each of them, to the people that you know follow me, the people I follow, the people who interact with me, and the people I interact with. In terms of writing things like this, in terms of writing in general, I actually don't know if I play off of Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or any of my digital communities that much. Rather, the, I mean, they're like inseparable from my life. And I feel like because I'm mostly a personal writer, they're naturally, you know, incorporated into whatever I'm producing. Like, it sounds like with your longer pieces, you are able to kind of like close the door, sort of write something that is, you leave those kinds of people behind. And then you have, then you have a voice, you have a persona that's kind of steps forward when you're on Twitter. Entirely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think actually it's interesting because I feel like Twitter Instagram, I feel like, is its own fiction. On Instagram, I'm essentially an aspirational lifestyle blogger who just posts a picture of food and nice architecture. Facebook is... I don't even know how I'd fucking describe Facebook. Twitter, I do think, is probably the most interesting because Twitter, I kind of... Over time, I've just developed it into probably more of a fictional environment than anything I create in my personal writing with longer form writing. In Twitter, for example, like I realized that people really loved tweets about where I would start them with my husband is mad with me for. And I'm I'm not married, I'm single, I'm not seeing anyone, I don't have a husband. But I've been able <laughs> I've cultivated like this fictitious person who is behind the screen of my Twitter account. 
uh, in a way that I think is actually more, now that I think of it, like definitely more detached from reality. Yeah, in my fiction, it's essentially more or less about me as me. On Twitter, I think I'm married for one. On Twitter, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a singer on Twitter. I tweet a lot about my record deal that I obviously don't have. I think Twitter maybe is more of a place to explore potential identities, whereas my fiction writer is more of like explaining like, okay, right, this is my identity. This is the one that I was assigned, that I've created, that I embody and inhabit. Let's, you know, let's see what's under the skin. This text in particular, I mean, it does touch on that kind of creation of a fictional character, but there's a little bit of a reveal there. Yeah. And when you read it, you, you, I mean, not knowing you and reading it, you might think like, maybe, maybe I just didn't notice, but this guy is a... This guy is a internet sensation. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, for the record. Yeah. Not yet. Well, the thing is, is that I'm, I think I'm a little bit out of touch. So uh. you totally could have been. I, I just wouldn't <laughs> have known it, right? Um, but there's, there's a few moments in the text where you, the facade breaks. And I think that that's really, I, don't, I can't remember exactly where it is, but I think that that's the st- there's also a lot of strength in that and there's probably the that that's where you reveal yourself a little bit where yeah, you're like you. yeah where i'm not i'm not the sensation that i'm trying to like depict here you are a sensational but uh, thank you. you're not the, you're not the you're not the world renowned sensation at the moment right. yeah well in the twitter you kind of like 100% go for it you're entirely like, yeah it's actually one of the critiques i got about this piece was from a friend who i know in person we met like three or four times but he also follows me on Twitter and most of my updates or most of the updates he receives on my life are through my social media presence uh, and the occasional email. And he, he asked me if he couldn't make the reading. Uh, so he asked me to send this piece to him. So I sent it to him and he was like, Nathan, this is like interesting, but like based on how you live your life on Twitter, this piece is kind of strange. Like, I mean, you're not as crazy as you, as you seem on Twitter. Like, you don't, you're not going as hard, as wild, as, like, batshit insane, as, you know, the representation, the figure of you on Twitter that I've come to know and understand and learn about you from. And I've, I was, yeah, no, it's very true. Like, there are very different personalities, they're very different uh, facades that I've put up, I guess. But I think that's also somehow the point as well, is that you don't have to be maniacal to be maniacal on social media entirely yeah. like you don't have to be kim kardashian in reality to be kim kardashian on entirely. twitter i mean obviously you don't get the verified check right you're missing that but um that's the point like you're not you're not crazy you're not that yeah. person really but you there's a part of you that would like to perform that person yeah full entirely. time <laughs> it's like a few years ago i actually uh was viral on the internet because i made a fake facebook account and lived life as Gwyneth Paltrow for about, like, six months or so. And it was such a fun project because I just basically inhabit the headspace of, like, a middle-aged soccer mom from suburban America and type out these, like, ridiculous Facebook statuses and friend people. And as I, it was when I was working at, a, at an art magazine and I posted on my coworkers' walls. My coworkers naturally had, like, extensive networks, specifically in the art scene. Slowly but surely, especially because German people don't really have the same kind of skepticism about identity as I feel like Americans have brought up uh, feeling. So a lot of important people, artists, gallerists, and critics 
from Berlin started adding Gwyneth Paltrow and interacting with her as if she was Gwyneth Paltrow. And I would interact with them back. And soon, every morning I was waking up with like 150 new friend requests on my phone uh, of people trying to get in touch with Gwyneth Paltrow. So I invited to like give a TED Talk, like MoMA's director was like liking and commenting on her statuses. Because at a certain point, she also became a fiction where like I had this very distinct style guide of this is the kind of content I produce as Gwyneth Paltrow. Here are the images and the statuses. And, you know, every, she had this very weird relationship to capitalization. Where her, what, what's her relationship to capitalization? Well, she just did it incorrectly, but very precisely in its mistakes. Mm-hmm. She Every noun was capital, for example. Hmm. Um, or, like, she would sign off, uh, you know, X, like the little hug, and then G. But she would put the period... Instead of putting it after the G to, you know, show that she's short in Gwyneth, she would put it after the X. And all these other just, like, weird idiosyncrasies. By the end of the six months, right before Facebook banned uh, the account, I realized that I'd actually started talking about Gwyneth in the third person. Like, Gwyneth (laughs) did this. Um, Gwyneth did that. And it wouldn't be, I did this as Gwyneth. Do you think that she or her team actually made... uh reported you or no i i actually i have i'm almost positive that what actually got me in trouble and what finally you know the last nail in the coffin approximately six hours before her account was closed her account before gwyneth was closed uh i'd somehow managed to find chris kraus on facebook and added her as gwyneth paltrow and i think she might have been the one who reported the account Really? Yeah, I think Chris Krause got Gwyneth deleted. The writer. Yeah. I love Dick. She, exactly. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like she would have been really into it. Totally. Yeah. Totally sounds like her thing. Exactly. Maybe it's because you chose the most, the world's most annoying white woman. Exactly. That's <laughs> the thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. I mean, I don't know if she's annoying, but isn't she like... She is really she's, annoying. She's renowned for being like... Out of touch. Out of touch, over like super privileged entirely. and like and trying to patronize everybody. Oh, basically, entirely, yeah. Right? Did, you, did you take on those characteristics? Oh, Were you 100%, trying... yeah. <laughs> Were you trying to teach people about rearing children and about yeah. what they should eat? Like one of those things with Gwyneth, like one of... Uh, she There was a vertical on her Facebook of my tip of the day. Where I just like list absolutely like inane bullshit <laughs> healthcare tips, being like, yeah, you know, you want to quit smoking, chew peppermint leaves, and then also put an onion in your sock to soak up the toxins. A lot of people would actually like, go home and do them and send me messages being like, hey, tried it out, worked wonders. Uh, so I had to be really careful and be like, not do something like, if you want to clear your sinuses, just like go snort a line of cayenne pepper. Because realistically, someone probably would have done that if Gwyneth Paltrow said that. I'd created this Facebook account as a joke, but lo- linked it to my work email. So every few months before I like started playing with the Gwyneth Paltrow identity, I would get an email of someone from like the middle of America or like Tanzania or Eastern Europe, Estonia, something, or like a Facebook message being like, so and so has been, hey Gwyneth, loved you in whatever movie Gwyneth Paltrow's in. Um, would love to chat sometime. Did you ever feel like you might get into legal trouble? Um, I did, and I looked forward to it. Uh, if I had received a cease and desist, it would probably be my favorite possession. <laughs> Amazing. 
Would you do something like that again? Or has, because when was that? That was 2000. That was like 2014, maybe? 2014. Yeah. A lot has happened since then. Yeah. It seems to have politically become such a big issue for the mainstream as Entirely, well. Entirely, yeah. Yeah, would you do something like that again? Work under... Yeah. Yeah. Probably, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do like the idea of also having like an anonymous avatar. But in terms of everything, though, it would be a build-up for the reveal. Again, I really like the idea of being famous, being recognized. And I think having a project as a trophy that I couldn't claim would be really frustrating. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Letters to the Editors. You can listen to more episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you're not already following Nathan Beyonce Ma on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, you should probably do that. He also has a blog, tinyletter.com, and a website, so you can find him there. And Letters to the Editors is an AKV Berlin project. <laughs>